Good morning again. It's great having you all here on this special day. It's a great, a great uh, privilege to be with you. As we think of parenting, it's, it's uh, something that I think is the greatest calling on the planet. Being able to raise children um, to love God and glorify Him with their lives is a tall order, but certainly something that the Lord desires each of us as parents to do as we raise our children. And if you've been a parent, you know that raising children, especially young children, uh, requires constant diligence. Uh, if you're going to do a good job, at least, you need to be on your toes at all times as parents. There's really no time to be able to vacation from parenting. Uh, there's always a need to watch and train, disciple, care for, guide 24-7 with children. And as Jesus was training his disciples, the group of 12 that followed him around, he had similar experiences, parenting experiences almost. And uh, he, Jesus was endeavoring to, to bring about godliness in the life of, of his disciples that would take over a worldwide ministry that would in fact change the course of human history. And so it was important that they were discipled well, parented well, if, if you will. And so Jesus was vigilant, constantly watching, taking advantage of, um, using opportunities to teach them what it meant to be a godly follower of Jesus Christ. Even on retreats, when, when Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds with his disciples, those retreats turned into mission opportunities, ministry opportunities. That was the case here from the passage we just read. They, they left to cross into a, a desolate place for a retreat, and when they got there, there were hundreds, well, thousands and thousands, some estimate up to 30,000 people wanting to be ministered to. And then, of course, the feeding of the 5,000 was what we experienced and studied last week. But keeping his disciples focused was an ongoing requisite of Jesus's ministry. He really could never take a break from these 12, hoping that, that they would be all right for a day or two or three. But in fact, he was always on his toes, attempting to teach them, train them, grow them up in the Lord. As Jesus was heading into the second half of his earthly ministry, it was imperative that his 12 apostles were clear on two specific things. And you'll see this repeated over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry, but Jesus wanted to make sure that his 12 apostles, 12 disciples, were clear on two things. Number one, his identity, and number two, his purpose. Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples. And then, why do you think I came to this planet? These are the things that he taught them, trained them, made sure that they were conversant on. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, where we find ourselves in Mark 6, it was about 16 or 18 months into his ministry, the, the 12 weren't really settled on either one of these questions. His true identity, they had some close guesses, and the purpose for which he came, they weren't even close. That understanding actually didn't come until after the resurrection, we discover. 
But they did know that there was something special, unusual about this particular rabbi, that he was unique in many, many ways, and they desired to be with him. By the time they reached Judea uh, for the second half of their ministry, so the first half of Jesus' ministry was focused in the north, up in the Galilean territory. The second half of Jesus' ministry was focused in the south, in the Judean territory near Jerusalem, where ultimately he died on the cross of Calvary. But in that time, when he entered the southern uh, ministry, the second half of its ministry, they started to understand that, that this guy, this rabbi they had been following was God in the flesh. They were pretty sure. You were the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter proclaimed in front of all of them. They were not yet completely clear on his ultimate purpose. That was yet to come. It took a little bit longer. And like I said, it didn't really happen for them until after the resurrection. There were two things in this passage of time, passage of three-year ministry, that Jesus had to constantly watch out for in the training of his disciples. He wanted to make sure they knew, that they knew who he was and the purpose he came, but, but that there was two general areas of concern that Jesus constantly was paying attention to. Number one, dangerous distractions that would pull his disciples away from this endeavor and then secondly, misunderstanding his identity and purpose. So he wanted to make sure that they did not misunderstand his identity and purpose, and number two, that they weren't going to be distracted from these things, from being trained to be apostles. So let's take these two things as they come in the text to us. The text covers both of them, and let's look at them closely, all right? First, dangerous distractions. And we see this in verses 45 through 47. If you have a Bible, it might be helpful for you to have it open in your lap so that you could see what I'm referring to. Verses 45 through 47 says, Immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out of the sea, and he was alone in the land. All right? This is verses 45 through 47 that give us a hint that Jesus was concerned with some distractions in his disciples. The crowd, why were they distracted potentially? Well, what had just happened? He had just fed around 20 to 25,000 people out of thin air, made food out of nothing. And so the crowd was ecstatic over being fed by this miraculous production of food. And Jesus was afraid that the 12 would be swept up and swept away in the euphoria. And so he ordered his disciples into the boat and away from the, the crowd that was becoming out of control. In the Gospel of John, the apostle there records that after feeding these large crowds, the crowd wanted to come and make Jesus king by force. Jesus knew that, and so Jesus wanted to dismiss his disciples so that they wouldn't be swayed by this crowd. Mark said that Jesus, look at verse 45, made his disciples get into the boat. It's like, you know, herding toddlers. This is what was going on. He was having a, uh, to make an intentional effort to get the guys in the boat. It says he made the disciples get into the boat and head to the other side of the lake. And it gives the impression, I think, that Jesus had urgency and had to apply pressure. And it says immediately he had to do this. It seems that the 12 were reluctant to leave. I think I would be too. I mean, look, look at all the excitement that's going on in this place. He just fed thousands and thousands of people. Everybody's 
pumped up about it. They want to make him king. We're right in the middle of this whole thing. This is kind of an exciting place to be. Of course, that was part of the distraction that Jesus wanted to avoid. Jesus had just taught them the point of the bread that he had handed out. Mark doesn't record that teaching, but the Gospel of John does. John says that Jesus preached a sermon on what it, his, what it meant to be to have the bread from heaven served to you. He, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. You must eat my body and drink my blood, which of course offended a bunch of people, understandably. But he had explained to the crowd the important necessity of, of partaking in his person. This is what was being taught on that day when the crowd was not listening. He was teaching on the purpose for which he came, which was wrapped up in the, the body and blood of Christ, the bread from heaven. The Passover, if you recall, was just about to happen in the spring of the year, and the Passover taught these very same things through the sacrifice of innocent animals. The very same thing Jesus was teaching about the sufficiency of his body and blood to cover sins is what was taught every single Passover in the sacrifice of the lamb. Jesus was just applying it to himself at this point. And of course the people were having none of it. So here are the things that Jesus wanted to avoid with his disciples. Uh, distractions that the disciples were facing. And the first is this, false views of Jesus. False views of Jesus, we learn from this passage, are dangerous. What views do you have of Jesus Christ that might fall into the danger category? Well, we'll, we'll discover here in a minute what those might be. But here Jesus was seeing that there was a, a dangerous view of Christ cropping up in the crowd, and Jesus was concerned with it. So after experiencing the powers of Jesus, the crowds were growing increasingly convinced that this guy could make a good Messiah. Uh, think about this from a political perspective. Uh, the people of Israel were under the yoke of Rome. They were being oppressed by a powerful military uh, country of Rome. It was really worldwide. And they saw this guy who could make food out of nothing and raise people from the dead. How would that go for your military, to be able to raise people from the dead and make food for anybody that was hungry? That'd go a long ways in a campaign against an opponent, wouldn't it? It certainly would. People thought this, which is why they wanted to come make him king by force. But that understanding of a Messiah was flawed. That wasn't why Christ came. Jesus knew it, and he was trying to get his disciples to understand that. Jesus was not a political Messiah. The key to understanding this passage, in my opinion, the one we're in now in Mark, is found in verse 52. Look at that closely with me. What, what is happening here? When I first started studying this in depth about a week ago, I was struggling to find, okay, why is Mark repeating these things once again, things we've already heard a few times? Why is he talking like this? And I think the answer is here in verse 52. It says, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What didn't they understand about the loaves? That can kind of give you a key to unlock this passage. Well, they didn't grasp the teaching recorded in John 6 about the identity of Christ, why he came, the bread from heaven. 
the, the spiritual sustenance for life, the, the forgiveness that came through his blood, they didn't get it. They didn't grasp it and it actually offended most of them. Eat my body and drink my flesh. I mean, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What in the world does that mean? Well, these people, including the disciples, were not clear on the identity and purpose of Jesus. Another possible misunderstanding, and I think this has some weight also, and I came across this uh, a while back, but it, it cropped up again in my studies this past week, and that is in the number of loaves and fish. Uh, maybe Mark was considering this possibility when he said in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves. I just gave you one option, but here's another that I think holds weight, and that is the actual numbers of five loaves and two fish and 12 baskets. As you've heard me say before, numbers, words, are not used in scripture uh, just randomly. There's a purpose in all things mentioned in Scripture. Why five? Why two? Why twelve? And some of the, the commentators that I read mention the following. The five loaves to the people of Israel, to the Jews, five was a very clear number. It always referred to the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It always referred, when you say five, that's where their mind went, the books of Moses. Two always went to the, the commandments, 10 commandments on two tablets. This is where their minds always went. And so when Jesus, when Mark records and all the gospels record, five and two, they're referring to Jesus' ability to fulfill all law. He fulfilled everything that was required in the law of God. Not only for the Messiah, but for what? Everyone. He perfectly obeyed God's word. He fulfilled the law of Moses in every way, not only, not only in obedience, but he also, he also was able to say, okay, I've also paid the penalty for those who have sinned. This is mentioned in the law of Moses and in the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus came to fulfill the law and provide for the masses what they could not provide for themselves. Obedience, perfect obedience. He fulfilled that requirement. He filled the requirement of perfect sacrifice for sin. The 12 baskets of leftover food represent the overabundance of the righteousness of Christ. Where sin abounds, Paul said, what abounds more? Grace, right? And so in this simple miracle, the feeding of 5,000, Jesus was demonstrating that he fulfilled all necessary requirements of God for his people, abundantly so. But misunderstanding the loaves meant that they still had not understood the identity of Christ to the depth that they should. Being fully God in human flesh to provide salvation and rescue for his people. So Jesus sent them away to avoid the danger of a false view of Jesus. We can also, in this room, in our day, have false and dangerous views of Jesus, can't we? This is where I want to, to challenge some of your thinking. Doctrinal errors about Christ are prevalent 
and dangerous. For example, the world has already made this very abundantly clear. Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, really a good leader, but certainly not God. We've heard this. That's not news to us in this room. But in fact, that is a dangerous view of Christ, isn't it? To claim he's a good man, a moral man, a good teacher, a good leader, but he isn't God? What does that do to the work of Christ on our behalf? It nullifies it, doesn't it, if he's not God? That's a dangerous view of Jesus, and yet it is the prevailing opinion in the world. How about this one? He wasn't really man. Well, that's not, I mean, I'm not sure if it's very common today, but it was at one point very common in world history. He couldn't have been a man. Look at him. Look at all the things he did. He wasn't a man. He was a replica of a man, but he was really a god or an angel come to do what he did. These are some serious doctrinal errors that we do our best at Sun Valley Church to teach on so that there isn't this, this danger, this dangerous distraction of a false view of Jesus. Here are some other practical uh, errors relating to Jesus Christ. That he really isn't concerned with me, me personally. He's concerned with us. He loves people, sure, in general, but I doubt he knows my name. That's a dangerous error. We are clear, the Bible is clear on God's personal knowledge and love for you as an individual in this room with your name, your personal current name. Another dangerous practical error is this, that, that I have a relationship with God because he runs errands for me. I, I, I'm, I'm not really his servant, he's mine. I, I call up and, and ask for something and then hang up and expect him to deliver it. That's a dangerous error. Uh, he's here to fulfill my wants. He's really a celestial Santa Claus. We've all heard that. Uh, another one comes from uh, the legalistic approach to belief, to Christianity, thinking that if I can check the boxes, Jesus will love me more. If I can do all the right things, God will accept me. If I can do, add to the list whatever you want, then God will like me. Legalism, a dangerous error. And on the other side of legalism is antinomianism, non-law, really. Uh, these people who follow that particular error are not too concerned about minor obedience. I mean, you gotta, we got to obey in the big part, but not in the smaller parts. It's, it's no big deal that I do this or do that. Everybody does that, right? Who doesn't do that? That's called antinomianism. It's a dangerous view of Christ and what he teaches. So Jesus wants his disciples, he wanted his disciples, he wants us to avoid these kind of dangerous distractions, things that will lead you away from following him faithfully. False views of Jesus are dangerous. And so Jesus sent his disciples away from the danger in that moment on the Sea of Galilee. Next we see a false view of obedience as being dangerous, a false view of obedience. 
When the disciples reluctantly got into the boat, it seems it was reluctant because he had to make them get in the boat um, at that scene of feeding 5,000, they were obedient. They finally got in and they finally left. They rode away. I'm, I'm sure that they wanted to stay. I mean, which is why Mark emphasized the firmness of Jesus' command or instruction, get in the boat. They wanted to stay. But they ultimately got in the boat and obediently rode away. Now, next scene. Not long after the boat left shore, which was around 8 or 9 p.m., they run into another storm. Here's where a misunderstanding of obedience becomes dangerous. So their obedience, follow me, their obedience got them into a pickle. Because they got in the boat, they were in the middle of the sea when the storm hit. If they had just stayed back next to the fire, they would have been safe and avoided all this. But because they obeyed, here they are in the middle of trouble. <laughs> the disciples found themselves once again in trouble on the Sea of Galilee. This had just happened like two days earlier, remember? This time, though, it was because they were obedient. They had obeyed Jesus, rode off to Bethsaida. And what happened? They became uncomfortable. They experienced a storm. Think about how many times obedience has caused discomfort. Starting with people that are not in our life or even not even thinking about ourselves right off the bat. Corey Ten Boom. Was obedience uncomfortable for them, the Ten Boom family? Yeah. They ended up spending a couple years in concentration camp because of it. Obedience cost them grace discomfort. In fact, half their family lost their lives in the concentration camp. How about Jim Elliot? His obedience to go to the unreached, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to un, an unreached Indian tribe in South America cost him his life and cost his wife a husband and his children a dad. Uncomfortable, to say the least. How about John Patton, Hudson Taylor? Name your missionary. Name your Christian. Think of your own life. How has obedience caused you some discomfort? If you're obedient, discomfort is a byproduct. That's what we need to understand. Honesty causes us to pay more taxes. Diligence at work may cause us to be despised by our fellow employees. Being moral will cause you to be ridiculed in worldly environments. Because you're obedient. And so when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, what happens is you expose yourself to many things that those who aren't committed to Jesus Christ will never endure. Obedience leads to difficulties, to storm. There is a false opinion, and here's the danger. There's a false opinion out there that suggests that if we follow Jesus, life will go smoothly. You don't believe that still, right? If you have one week at Sun Valley Church, you don't believe that because we address it regularly. But there is a, a common teaching in the church today, especially the Western church, that if you follow Jesus, life will go better. You want a better job, better marriage, better whatever, follow Jesus. That opinion leads to discouragement and disillusionment with Christ, who to you who believe that has disappointed 
Obedience will bring trials guaranteed. Peter says, why are you surprised that you're suffering? This is what it means to follow Christ. You've read these things. Storms at sea come to those who are on the sea obediently. But with the discomfort, with the trial, with the hardship, as we'll see in this story, comes joy and ultimately worship. Which is the point of the Christian life. Joyful worship. <laughs> Follow me. This is, the story starts picking up some speed in my mind at this point. <clears throat> the most important part here, in my opinion, is what the disciples did once Jesus solved the chaos of the storm. The book of Matthew, which records this same story, says that the disciples, the moment Jesus got in the boat and stilled the storm, worshipped. They worshipped. They said this, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the God of heaven. He just fed 5,000 or 25,000 people, and now he calms a storm? They were learning. They were growing. So, here's what we can take away from this particular lesson on obedience. From the story that, that is in front of us. Number one, obedience will often lead to challenging circumstances. Hear me. Obedience will often lead to challenging circumstances. Two, Help from God will always show up. Challenging circumstances lead to help from God, which leads to joyful worship. Obedience leads to challenging circumstances, which leads to help from God, which results in joyful worship. How does this happen? Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15 Give it to us succinctly. Listen. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Why are we offering thanksgiving? Because, because he has met us in our trouble. The psalmist goes on to say it. And you will call upon me in the day of trouble. All right? You've been obedient. You've gotten in trouble. I will show up. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Those four things. Obedience leads to discomfort, hard times, which leads to God showing up and your worship, glorifying him. These guys were growing, weren't they? They were learning. Friends, the point of the Christian life is joyful worship. If you're not experiencing joyful worship, you're not living the Christian life. You're mixed up with something else. In fact, we could say the point of creation is worship, isn't it? It is. Whatever you do, Paul told the Corinthians, do all to the glory of God. Everything exists to bring glory to God. So, as you faithfully, listen, as you faithfully navigate the chaos of your life, which we all experience, it will result in worship. 
If you faithfully navigate the chaos of life, it will result in joyful worship. Christian friend, do you hear me? You'll, you'll begin to see Jesus more clearly in your trial, in your chaos. You'll begin to understand his love for you more deeply, and your heart will be drawn to worship more passionately. Your joy will begin to overflow even in your challenging circumstances. And then, of course, when you get to that stage of worship, that isn't the end of your experience. The cycle continues. With worship comes more obedience. With more obedience comes more challenge. With more challenge comes more God. With more God comes more joyful worship. And it continues through the Christian life. In the midst of our trials, we may be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't know about my trials. How could he? I'm suffering so. But the opposite is true. Look at verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus saw that his 12 friends were experiencing chaos, painful chaos. He did see their struggles and he did go to help. And I think this is included in the story in Mark 6 to help us who are in the middle of the storm of life to see that Jesus is there watching and on his way, if not already there, to help you. What a wonderful encouragement to us. Jesus came at the darkest hour of the night. The, third, the fourth watch is at 3 a.m. That's when it starts. It doesn't get any darker than 3 a.m. At the darkest part of the night, when they were the most tired, most discouraged, then Jesus, in their minds, finally showed up. What are you going through that you're saying, I'm about done here. I need some help. God. Remember this. God is the God of 11.59 and 59 seconds. Not 58. 59. Like in this story. At 3 a.m. When they were most fatigued. When the wind was blowing its hardest. When it was the darkest. Jesus showed up. False views of Jesus and false views of obedience are dangerous, and we need to avoid them. Secondly, Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples remembered his true identity, who he truly was. Don't forget who Jesus is, Christian friend. No, forgetting who Jesus is is the cause of most of our struggles with sin and disappointment and failure. We have the God of universe in the boat. This section of scripture, if we combine all four gospels, this section of scripture concerning this particular miracle of walking on the water is chock full of miracles. And I'll tell you why in a second, but the clue is the title of this point, remembering who Jesus is. And let me review some of the, the miracles that took place within a 24 hour period. This miracle, the walking on water, uh, was preceded by feeding tens of thousands of people out of thin air. This miracle of walking on the water was preceded by Jesus seeing in the middle of the night three and a half miles out into the Sea of Galilee. Whether that was a miracle or an exceptionally clear night, I'm not sure, but <laughs> that happened. Thirdly, Jesus walked on water. 
Fourth, Peter walked on water. Next, immediately upon entering the boat, the wind and the waves stopped and was completely calm. Immediately upon the wind and the waves stopping, Matthew says they were on the shore, transported. Time warp, I don't know what happened. They went from here to there in milliseconds. And then upon arrival, Jesus resumed healing people of their diseases. All within 24 hours. All this miraculous work compressed within a short 24-hour period. What's Jesus doing? He's up to something. What is it? It's critical to remember who Jesus is. And he was putting on a full display. I am the God of the universe. And you probably should remember that is what Jesus was saying to his disciples. You got a problem in your home? I am the God of the universe, and you might want to pay attention to that. You got a problem at your work, at school, in your marriage, with your neighbors? I am the God of the universe, and I can meet your need. If you were on the dock that day, when Jesus got into the boat and the wind and the, and the waves stopped rolling, you might have been in for a surprise in the dock at Gennesaret. Why? Because one minute you're fishing there in, in your leisure, kind of, you know, nothing on your brain, flatlining. Next minute, there's a boat full of 13 guys in it, 12 of them, eyes this big around with Jesus. They went from there to there like that. In one second, there was no boat. The next second, a boat full of 13 guys. How would you have responded to that situation? Like this. <laughs> what would have happened? This is, this is mind-blowing stuff to think about. Sudden appearance of a boat with 12 guys, 13 with Jesus. I want you to notice that, that Jesus is always concerned about what his disciples are thinking about. He's always concerned to protect them from wrong conclusions, to encourage them to think rightly about who he is and why he came. He never leaves things to chance. There's always a point in all of these stories about Jesus Christ. This struggle that they were in because of their obedience so many lessons we could pull out of that. Just think for a moment on all the things that took place that Jesus used to communicate important truth. It says that he meant to pass them by. You see that in verse 48? He meant to pass them by. That's one of two translation possibilities of that particular text. If you, if you go with that one, the one that the translators used in the ESV, he meant to pass them by, then you would conclude that Jesus was doing what he was doing to get the attention of his disciples, to remind them of the importance of always sticking close to him, to calling out for him, to ask for help from him, because when they saw him, what did they do? They cried out. That would be your conclusion if you interpreted that Jesus meant to pass them by. But that's not the only interpretation. 
The other is, as equally valid, Jesus meant to come alongside them. In the original language, those two words are inseparable almost. Pass by and come alongside. If you're one who believes that Jesus came alongside, (laughs) the point is obvious, isn't it? Jesus meant to come alongside them, to be a help, to be an encouragement, to, to be that strength, that support that they needed in that time of crisis. And for us, he, he means to come alongside of us, Christian friend. In the times of our difficulty, in the times of our, our stress and chaos, Jesus intends to come alongside us and help. He desires to draw you to himself. Draw an eye unto God, and he will draw an eye unto you. What we learn here now, as, we, as we're under the second point, <clears throat> remembering who Jesus is, is the first thing that Jesus once wanted his disciples to remember was, is, he's the, the Lord of the, he is the Lord of the storm. He's the Lord of the storms, all storms. Remember, a similar storm happened literally 24 hours or 36 hours before this second storm. Must have been a stormy weekend. Uh, But God has always ruled storms, hasn't he? He's always been in charge of the weather. Anytime there are weather, God's involved. Beginning, Beginning early in Genesis, throughout Old Testament history, into the ministry of Jesus and beyond, we see that God rules the weather. Controlling the weather is a sure sign of deity. Which is why Jesus is always controlling the weather in the Gospels. It's an obvious thing, isn't it? If there is one thing that causes chaos in our lives, it's the unpredictability of weather, isn't it? If, if it's warm, we'll go outside. If it's raining, we'll stay inside for recess. We're dependent on weather a lot. We in the Yakima Valley, with our farmers who are dependent upon agreeable weather, know more about this than most. But weather controls us. We don't control it. If we have warm, warm weather, we go on a hike. If we have snow, we go skiing. If it rains, we stay inside or, or take an umbrella, and hopefully it'll put out the fires in the summertime. If it's too hot, we turn up the AC. If it's too cold, we turn up the heat. On and on and on it goes. Not so with Jesus. If it's raining, he says, stop. This is what he did here on this day. We had a massive windstorm that was causing a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He says, that's enough. Which is why it's recorded. So they'd remember who Jesus is. If he can control the weather, maybe he has something to say about my life. He was turning up, Jesus was turning up the intensity of the presentation of his divine identity to bring his disciples along to the point of certainty about his person, about who he was. It wasn't until after the resurrection, as I said earlier, that they really settled on his purpose, but his identity was becoming more and more clear daily. Jesus' lordship of the weather in this story began before he sent the twelve away, of course, across the Sea of Galilee, and when he said, you guys go out, he wasn't surprised to hear that there was a storm or to see that there was a storm brewing. Um, He sent them out because there was a storm brewing. 
to once again establish his identity and purpose. And so after sending away the disciples and dismissing the crowds, Jesus went up to pray. Why did he go up to pray? They had just demanded that he become king. He wanted to stay focused on his mission, on the Lord's will, the Father's will. And so he went up to pray, not only for himself, but for his disciples who were constantly growing and under duress and being stretched. And it says he prayed till the fourth watch, which was 3 a.m. And that's when he looked out and either miraculously or not saw the boat struggling against the, the, the wind. In thinking about that, I was thinking about that this morning actually, sitting at my dining room table, I can look out and see a tandem race from my dining room table. And I was thinking, I've seen vehicles on that, on that hill before. And that hill is just about three miles away as a crow flies from my window. So I suppose if it were a clear night and the moon was shining brightly, he could have potentially seen that little speck on the Sea of Galilee that was being driven away from its destination. Um, but others believe that it was supernatural vision. So we have this, we have Jesus coming to his people, his deity on display again, and it scared his disciples. Um, but that fear didn't last long, did it? No, it did not. Uh, what happened when Jesus identified himself? They cried out, and then he said with comforting words, fear not, what do you say next? It is I. Now let me tell you something that's kind of cool. The words it is I is just two words in the original language, which was a self-title that God used. God is the one who called himself I am. You remember when Moses at the burning bush asked God, who should I tell him sent me? What did God say to Moses? Tell them I am sent you. All throughout the Gospels, the Gospel writers use that same terminology when Jesus speaks of himself. I am before Abraham was. You recall that from John 8? I am. The words are ego emi. I am. Here he's walking up beside the boat on a stormy sea, obviously frightened disciples, and what's he say? I am. Nothing to be afraid of. I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Moses. I am the God who created all these things, including the wind and the rain. I am. Fear not. That might help you in a storm. I know it helped these guys. These disciples were on a steep learning curve. Do you ever feel like you're on a steep learning curve in your Christian walk? What's next? God, I need a, I need a breath of air. I'm, I'm sinking under the water like Peter. And that Peter walking on water was part of this story. Mark didn't record it. But why do you think Mark didn't record Peter walking on the water? Where did Mark get his info for this story? Peter. And Oh, yeah, make sure you include the part where I walked on the water. No. Hence, Peter didn't include it. It was a demonstration of Peter's humility when it certainly could have been said. The other gospel writers said it. Peter didn't. So Jesus is here 
guiding his disciples through the minefield, the dangerous minefield of false opinion of obedience, the false opinion of Jesus, and reminding them of who he is and why he came. Friends, that is what we must remember, who he is and why he came. He came to save you from your sin. He came to pay the penalty that you owe, that you cannot pay. He came to fulfill the law, which you cannot do, and, and, and yet we try and try again. Remember who he is. He's the God of heaven who came to save your soul, to, to bring you joy and abundance in the Christian life. He came to rescue people like you and me. He came to bring life. <clears throat> Jesus saved these 12 men, and then when Peter jumped out of the boat, he saved Peter. In spite of Peter's doubts and lack of faith and sinful nature, he stuck out his hand and saved him. It's a beautiful picture of the way he graciously helps us in our time of need, even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. <clears throat> And then we read that they were utterly astounded, verse 51. That's what happens when you encounter the God of heaven. <laughs> you're utterly astounded. If you're not utterly astounded, you haven't met the God of heaven. You've met something else. He's not your pal, he's not your buddy. He's the God of heaven. When you meet him, you're utterly astounded. Next we see here in reminding them who he was besides the Lord of the storm, Jesus left them with this as the Lord of compassion. Even though he is the grand master of the universe, the, the, the omnipotent one, he demonstrates compassion. Look at the next part of the verses here. When they crossed over, came to the land of Genesaret, more to the shore. When they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him and brought all their sick people to him. And he stopped after a sleepless night and ministered to every one of them out of compassion. I thought about the story, you know, think, think through what you're hearing here. He, Jesus says, get in the boat, go to Bethsaida. And verse 53 says, where'd they end up? It wasn't Bethsaida. It was Genesaret. So, what was going on here? Did they not know where they were going? These guys knew they were going. This, this sea was their backyard. They knew how to get to Bethsaida. Why'd they end up in Genesaret? Because Jesus knew there was hurting people there, and he blew the boat to Genesaret. And he did that to prove a point. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. My purposes. My purposes will stand, Isaiah 45. They will not falter. So, the boat full of these guys, wide-eyed, show up at Genesaret, where Jesus intended to go all along so he could heal these people who were sheep without a shepherd, who were hurting, who were in pain. He gets out of the boat and he ministers for hours in healing their sicknesses. He had compassion. Jesus, of course, in his healing ministry, intended to relieve their immediate physical suffering because he loves people and is compassionate. But he's also, more importantly, does this to show that he not only can heal their physical ailments, but came to rescue them out of their spiritual ailments. Come unto me, all who you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
God is a God of compassion. He is a compassionate God for the weary, for the sick. He meets physical needs because he loves people. He meets spiritual needs because he's a compassionate God. Colossians 3.12, among other places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. The first thing on the list. You want to become like Jesus? Develop a compassionate heart. First thing on the list. First thing off the pen. Am I a compassionate person? Or am I, you're getting what you deserve person? Am I a compassionate person? Or am I a serves you right person? Those who are Christ followers, those who remember who he is, remember that he's a compassionate person developing compassionate followers. Friends, are we pursuing compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? Sounds a lot like Philippians 2, doesn't it? We are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And Jesus had to constantly remind his 12 disciples of his deity and his purpose. He also had to demonstrate to, him, to them his compassion for people. Friends, we must avoid dangerous distractions and remember who Jesus really is and why he came. This short passage here reveals all these things to us. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your loving compassion for people. Thank you for demonstrating that compassion over and over again while you walked on this planet, but also as you came to die on this planet. Compassion for hurting people like me, like those in this room, who have burdens of sin weighing us down, whose remedy is you, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Father, we are thankful to you also for sending your Son, our Savior, who has performed all things, requirements, all, all things expected in your word for those whom you've created. You sent Jesus to live the perfect life which we could not, to die the death, to pay the penalty for which we could not. And so we're, st we're standing here, sitting here, simply acknowledging your goodness, thanking you for your love and mercy and grace in Christ. Holy Spirit, convict us in these places in our lives that need convicting. Help us to run to Jesus with our sorrows and concerns. Help us to cry out to our Savior when we're in the storm. Lord Jesus, have mercy on our souls. And I pray this in his name. Amen.